Pardon? I don't know why. No, it's all digital. I don't know why. It just takes forever. You know? Actually, it's a Sony. I don't know what its problem is, but maybe that is its problem. So, Okay, we are... Uh, we are at the end of Genesis chapter 27, and uh, we will be going on into chapter 28 today. It's all really kind of one story here. And last, uh, the last time we were together before Christmas, a couple weeks ago, we, uh, we looked at uh, uh, kind of the middle section of chapter 27. And I know you all have slept since then and you have partied since then. So you've got to put on your thinking caps and go back and look at that passage. Uh, I think the last time we were together, we, uh, uh, we started in, uh, in, I think, about uh, verse 30 and went down through about verse 40 or so. We touched a little bit on verse 41. So uh, kind of look down through there and remind yourself of what we talked about and... Tell us, what did we talk about the last time we were together? Yeah, yeah. It's a real sobering part of that story, isn't it? And and actually, he brings that out in in uh, Hebrews when uh, the writer of Hebrews brings that out when he when he uh, uses the story of uh, of Esau here as an illustration of of just being too late. And there are times in our life when when we just we we we, we wake up too late. We realize too late uh, that we should have made another decision, or we try to correct the decision we've made, and it's just too late to do it. There are some things in life, unfortunately, that are irreversible. And, uh, and that's one of the sobering lessons uh, that we see in this story of Esau. For those of you who weren't here uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about, about uh, Esau coming in right after his brother had stolen the blessing and discovering that his brother had stolen the blessing <coughs> and his just his vigorous efforts to try to get his father to, to bless him or, or uh, somehow reverse the situation that had just unfolded. And, and, of course, he was unable to do that. And that's what we're talking about, about him being too late. What else? Well, one thing that was kind of troubling to me is why, we didn't actually talk about this, but it's been puzzling. Why did, the, why did Esau receive well, a negative blessing, but why, you know, again, there was a blessing for, for Jacob and there was these good things, but why does that necessarily mean that Esau's got a curse or, or you know, like, I don't know if that really is a curse, but it's a, not very positive, is it? Yeah. Why could he say, you know, you're yeah. a good boy too? You know, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> why, why did it turn out that way? Does anybody have any thought on that? Before I reveal my ignorance. Well, I already did mine. So <laughs> you know, he pleads, well, give me a blessing yeah. too. And, yeah. and I understand there's only one, and they're thinking they're, this is the birthright. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah, there's only one of those, but there could be 
Some, something else good, yeah, yeah. You know, at least a McDonald's franchise or something. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? I I really don't have an answer to that. I don't know. Uh, it it may have been as we observed on in the first when he gave the blessing to Jacob, thinking he was giving it to Esau, that he gave it by faith, and so he gave it. Uh, I believe under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And it may have been that here at this point he's just simply speaking under the unction of the Holy Spirit, and and this is God's uh, this is God dealing with Esau because of his rejection of the birthright. I don't I don't know. That's just a speculation on my part. Yes, Rick. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, so that may have been what's going on there. I, you know, I, I couldn't say dogmatically. But, so, anything else from that passage as you look down through it that you recall we talked about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although, uh, I think we're all probably pretty much in agreement. He didn't go about it the right way. Yet, God is still providentially directing even when people are doing everything wrong. (laughs) Everybody in this story is doing everything wrong. And yet, God is somehow providentially working uh, to accomplish His purposes. That's... And that's comforting to me because I've been in plenty of situations where everybody's doing everything wrong, and you just go wonder how can you know you you think how can this possibly turn out right or how can how can how can God's glory be achieved in this? But but God is able uh, to override men's stupidity and men's sin and and still fulfill His purposes, and so that's encouraging to see in this situation. Anything else? interesting that he despised the birthright, but now he's whining about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, he obviously had some degree of a change of mind. I don't think he necessarily had a, suddenly had a spiritual awakening here, but he, I think he realized at this point, uh, boy, I think I blew it earlier. <laughs> and he tries to remedy that. Yeah, back, back here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something? It, you know, it's just we see things one way, God sees them the, uh, another way, and. And, and, of course, the idea there is when he's talking about firstborn, he's, the idea is not so much the issue of chronology, but the position of honor uh, that he's speaking of there. And, and that's how God sees it. And we tend to see things other way. But Rick, you're going to say something. It, it was Yeah. Yeah. And yet he held this thing 
Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting how in this story, and we'll see it again with Rebecca, how people kind of uh, do a little historical revisionism <laughs> as they look back on circumstances. And in the story as it unfolds today, we're going to see Rebecca laying all the blame for what happens on Jacob <laughs> when she was really kind of the brains behind the thing. And uh, so it's interesting how when we look back on things that happened, we try to shift the blame off of us onto other people. And and that's what Esau's done, and of course that's what Rebecca does to some degree in this story. Well, let's pick up the story then in verse 41 and read uh, down through the end of the chapter and into chapter 28 a few verses. Uh, and we have a lot to cover today, so uh, so we'll see uh, how far we can get. Uh, I am anxious to get into the, the next part of the story, which is Jacob's uh, encounter with the Lord at Bethel. And... Uh, so I, I, I'm anxious to get to that next week, but I don't know. We'll see how far we get today. So he says, so Esau, verse 41 of 27. So Esau bore grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling him concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise, flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May He also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there. And that when he had blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Nahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Okay? Well, going back then into chapter 27 there in verse 41, we see, of course, the result of uh, what has transpired Esau's discovery of uh, his uh, brother's treachery. And it says there that Esau bore a grudge against Jacob and he determined in his heart that as soon as dad was dead, he was going to kill his brother. 
Okay? And so, so we see then this festering sore in the heart of, in the heart of Esau. His, his anger, his resentment, his bitterness just seething there. And he's feeding on this. And he determines that he's going to kill his brother. I want you to notice, though, what, what does it say that he is so bitter or resentful or angry about? Okay. Okay. It's the blessing that his father had given. Now, it is interesting to me that it's not so much Jacob's treachery that he's angry about. What he's angry about is the blessing. He's angry about the blessing that Jacob now has that he wished he had. Okay. It's, in other words, what's festering in the heart of Esau is his jealousy and his envy over the blessing of God on the life of his brother. The favor of God on the life of his brother. Does that sound familiar? Does it ring a bell? Cain and Abel, right? Remember Cain? When, when the Lord received the offering of Abel and Cain saw that, and what was he angry about? Yeah, that the Lord had regard for his brother's offering. He, he was angry about the favor that God was showing towards Abel. And so we have the same, uh, we have the same scenario here that, 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 that uh, a, a brother is angry over the favor that God is showing to his brother. And what we discover then is it's, it's, like, it's like the narrator here is trying to point out to us here that Esau, like Cain, is of the seed of the serpent. That just as Cain was of the seed of the serpent, so Esau also is of the seed of the serpent. Okay? And he reflects that same characteristic of envying the righteous for the blessing of God. And we see that still today, don't we? We see that that with the wicked, with those who with those who reject uh, the Lord and those who reject a life of righteousness, they they don't want the discipline of righteousness. They don't want to live the lifestyle of righteousness. But they're resentful that they don't get the benefits of righteousness. And so when they look at the righteous. And the righteous are blessed by God. They're resentful and they're envious and they're bitter that the righteous are blessed by God, but they are unwilling themselves to live in a way that will make them recipients of that favor of God. And so that's what we see here with, uh, with Esau. Now, there's a couple of things that come out in the passage that are uh, that that give us some understanding or more insight into Esau and into his anger. But you'll notice when uh, his mother, Rebecca, is speaking to Jacob, uh, she says, uh, 
she says in verse 44, Stay with him a few days, uh, speaking about Jacob staying with Laban, until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. She actually uses two different words there. You notice that? She refers to his fury and then she refers to his anger. And, and those are really two different words have kind of two different connotations to them. The, the idea, the, the word fury there uh, has the meaning of a burning fire, heat, or passion. Okay? And so it's really a reflection of kind of the, the inner rage that's, that's just boiling or, or that's inflamed inside the heart of Esau. It's this kind of inner invisible rage. Okay. But the word anger actually comes from a word which means to breathe hard through the nostrils. Okay. Now, what does that remind you of? A bull. An angry bull, doesn't it? Okay. So, it really reflects more the outward, you know, the outward anger, but it's still being... You know, still being pent up inside. And so what we get is this picture of Esau, of a guy who's just filled with rage and anger and bitterness, but it's all being pent up inside. He can't do anything about it. And why can't he do anything about it? Because dad's still alive. And the one thing he wants more than anything else is he wants his dad's approval and he wants his dad's favor. And so he can't do anything that will hinder the approval of his father. So he just sits on this and he's just, you know, he's just, it's just cooking inside of him. But it does leak out. You'll notice it says he says to himself initially, but then later it says, you know, in the next verse it says, when, Rebecca, when it was told to Rebecca the words of her, her oldest son. So he obviously told somebody. <laughs> he let it out somewhere. It's, it's so intense in him that he can't totally keep it inside of himself. And somehow it leaks out and Rebecca hears about it. But there's this tremendous hostility and this anger. How does he deal with this anger? What does he do with it? How does he comfort himself or console himself with this anger burning inside of him? Well, he decides he's going to kill him. <laughs> okay. He just creates a plan. He just, well, I'll just kill him. So, all this time that he's going to have to wait, and he thinks it's going to be a short period of time, but that actually lives for 40 more years. Okay. But he thinks it's going to be a short time. And so he just figures, you know, I'll just I'll kill him. And so whenever he thinks about this anger or whatever, the way he deals with this anger, the way he deals with this resentment is he concocts and meditates on and contemplates on this scheme to kill his brother. Okay? Now, there really are only two ways to deal with the wrong that we experience at the hands of others. Right? There is the way that Esau has chosen. And by that, I don't mean go out and kill the person who wronged you. But, but you've been there, probably. I certainly have been there. Where someone has really seriously wronged you. And then you have a choice to make about what you're going to do with the pain and the anger and the hostility and the bitterness and the resentment that just naturally swells up inside of you. You know, what, what, what are you going to do with that? Well, 
One choice we can make is we can make Esau's choice. And we may not plan to kill the person because we know, you know, that sometimes is a losing proposition for us. But we just kind of harbor this ill will. This delight in the calamity of another. And so, if someone has really wronged us and we, and, and we don't properly deal with the feelings inside of us, one of the things we do is we, we just kind of hope things go really bad for them. And the last thing we think about doing is praying for them or praying a blessing on them. Those are the last things we would think about doing, but rather we think about what evil might happen to them. And if we hear that some misfortune happens to them, there's, you know, it's kind of a sense of satisfaction because <laughs> they deserved it. They, you know, they, they treated me wrong or they treated somebody else. And, and they, you know, what goes around comes around and this really, they really deserve this. So there's that. You know, and sometimes if we feed on that long enough, it really can get to a point where we actually begin to scheme in our mind of ways to injure or hurt the person who's hurt us. Okay? That's one way to deal with it. The other way to deal with it is to relinquish it to God. What are we taught in the New Testament? He says, do not take your own what? Revenge. But what? Leave room for the vengeance of the Lord. There is the other way to deal with it with it is to release it to God. Okay? To turn it over to the Lord. Okay. So that so that we have teaching, particularly in the New Testament, like the Jesus like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you or who despitefully use you. Okay? And so so there's this other way of dealing with things. Now I want to I want to make a distinction. Those of you who have been uh, in my class for a long time uh, have heard me make a, 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 a very important distinction, at least what I think is an important distinction, uh, an important clarification about, about this area is I'm not talking here about forgiveness because I believe it is wrong to forgive someone who has not repented. Okay. Now, I know the common thought in evangelical circles today uh, is, you know, you just always forgive. You're always responsible for forgive. No matter what anybody's done to you, you need to forgive them. Okay? I just don't find that in Scripture. God doesn't deal with us that way. God doesn't forgive everybody. God only forgives people who repent. Okay? And, and I think part of the confusion comes because we equate forgiving somebody with dealing with these feelings that we've been talking about, about anger and hostility and bitterness and resentment and all those sort of things. Those are entirely two different things. Forgiveness is not something, is not something that I do for myself. It's something I do for the other person. It's releasing them from the obligations or the responsibilities that they have incurred because of their wrongdoing. That's forgiveness. What we are obligated to do when somebody wrongs us is we are obligated to imitate the character of God. What does God do when he is wronged? One, he does not forgive a person who does not repent. But two, God loves his enemies 
and we see in the example of Jesus, prays for those who persecute him. Right? So, so what we come to understand there is that there's a world of difference between extending forgiveness to somebody and dealing with the resentment and the bitterness and the angerness and the anger and things that naturally well up in my heart when I am wronged. That is wrong. God condemns that. And that is destructive to us and to other people. And we must deal with it, as I suggested. But forgiving somebody is another issue altogether. You had a comment, right? Uh, I, I think I think he is praying that his father will forgive them, but we know the father does not forgive unless they repent. And I think what Jesus is saying is, is Father, if they come to you in repentance, I want you to forgive them. I, I think that's what he means there. Yes. And so, in a sense, we have got to basically come to a position of, uh, within, inside of us, maybe, of forgiveness, so we can go on. Well, and that's why I think this distinction is important, because forgiveness in Scripture is always something that is done for the other party. It's not done for my sake. And what I find is interesting is on the subject of forgiveness when it's taught, oftentimes it's taught you forgive somebody for what it does for you. But that's never what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that forgiveness is done for the other party. And that's why I think it's important for us to draw a distinction between the responsibility that somebody incurs when they act wrongly and the bitterness and resentment and anger and all those things in me that are totally a different issue. I have to deal with those. Those things are wrong. Those things must be purged from my life. But, but let's take, for example, let's take, for example, uh, an extreme example of a, of, a, of a woman who is, say, she's raped and abused by her father when she's growing up, okay, repeatedly, okay. And, and at some point in her life, she has to make a decision what she's going to do with it. Her father's never repented. Her father's never said he was wrong. His father's never asked for forgiveness. Okay. Do we really say to that woman, you go to your father and say to your father, I forgive you? Well, most people won't go that far. They'll say, well, no, she doesn't go to her father and tell him that, but she does forgive him in her heart. Well, if you don't tell him that, he's not forgiven. Because forgiveness is the release of the other person from their responsibility. That's what God does. When He forgives us, He tells us we're forgiven and He releases us from our responsibility. Okay? So in this extreme example that I'm, that I'm using here, I would never tell that woman that she needed to forgive her father. What I would tell that woman is, you have been grievously, terribly wronged, but you cannot harbor bitterness. You cannot harbor resentment. And you cannot hate him. Those emotions and those feelings have to be dealt with and they have to be purged from your life because as Rick pointed out, they will destroy you. And they will not only destroy you, but they will destroy other people as well. So you have to deal with that. And when you come to a point where you can love someone 
and not yet forgive them, then you have become like God. Then you have, then you have, uh, then you have, uh, have uh, 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 taken upon yourself the character and the quality of God. And we can't really forgive someone until we love them, right? Until we've dealt with that anger and that resentment and that bitterness and, 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 and developed a disposition of love towards another person, then I can't really forgive them. I'm only able to really forgive somebody and release somebody when they come to me asking for forgiveness. I'm only able to do that if I really love them. Okay? I think part of the, part of the issue on that that we get hung up on is um, an example of what you're talking about is God's common grace. We yeah. do things that are wrong in God. We see people out in the world, for example, we know that they're wrong. They haven't repented that God still gives grace to them. Yes. They still can yeah. prosper you know, in the world's sense or they can still do well. And that's kind of confusing sometimes. You look at that, why is that guy still doing yeah. well yeah. or appears to do well? And that's God's common grace. And the part of our heart is getting uh, up to the point where we are ready to forgive. Like yes. you said, we're ready to love. And as soon as they say, I'm sorry, we're there. And yeah. Yeah. Seventy times seven. Yeah. 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 And actually, there's a parallel to the common grace thing in our own lives, because remember, the scripture also teaches us that in the, uh, that love covers a multitude of sins. OK. And so, you know, I don't I don't insist. I don't insist that every little uh, mistake or offense that my wife or my children or my friends or my neighbors commit, that they come, you know, on hands and knees begging my forgiveness before I forgive them. We're talking about serious offenses here that deeply wound. Okay, we're not talking about the trivial everyday things that happen in our life, and that if we're really responsible and and loving people, we just say hey, it's no big deal. <laughs> you know, it's no big deal to me. You know, and so there is a there is a common grace, if you will that we extend to people just in everyday living and the common little offenses the guy cuts you off in traffic and you just go no big deal you know he's having a bad day and you just you blow it off and you forgive him you know that's not the kind of thing we're talking about we're talking about the serious wounds that we incur at the hands of others okay and, that, and so I, I think we should make that distinction I like that idea of common grace because it because it, it I think there's a parallel there well uh, I, yeah go ahead because I always think of Joseph in this kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who's just going about his life, and he has a lot of reason to resent and hate and want revenge yeah. on a lot of people because yeah. a lot of people did him wrong. Yeah. And it's easy to read his story and look back on that and see and understand it, but it's the same in our lives, and we don't know where somebody does us wrong and that's the key to changing directions on things and directing our lives where they're supposed to go. Yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily fun and we don't like it, but that may be how we get to where it's yeah, yeah. supposed to be. So I think we have to be very careful how we treat people and put us in that Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And there's another interesting thing about Joseph there. He's, he's an example of exactly the thing I'm talking about. Before his brothers ever arrived in Egypt, he dealt with the issue in his own heart. And he knew that God had done this for a purpose. You know, he didn't know what until his brothers showed up. But when his brothers showed up, he was already in a disposition to forgive them. But you'll notice he didn't do it. He didn't forgive them 
until he knew they were repentant. When we get to the story of Joseph, you'll see that. That he actually he keeps them in a harm's leg. He doesn't even let them know who he is for a while. And, and he plays with them a couple times. You know, they go back and forth between Canaan and Egypt. What's happening there? Joseph is finding out whether or not his brothers really repented. And it's only when he finds out his brothers have really repented that he says, okay, you're released. And he tells them who he is and he embraces them and he lets them know that they're fully released. But he couldn't have done that had he not already dealt with all the hurt and pain that he had already suffered. Well, let's go on. That's a, that's a, Obviously, we could spend a long time talking about this subject, but there's so much to talk about in this passage. Uh, we next come to the, the part of the story here where Rebecca, once again, being Rebecca, uh, feels compelled to intervene in the situation. I think it's fortunate at this point that she did. <laughs> okay. Uh, because had she not, no telling what would have happened uh, to Jacob. But so she intervenes, and the first thing she does is she uh, she hears about what's going to happen, and so she calls Jacob to her, and she clues Jacob in uh, to the feelings of her uh, of her oldest son. And uh, and what does she tell Jacob to do? Okay, get out of here. Okay, this place is dangerous. Okay. And, uh, and so she tells him to leave. She, and where does she tell him to go? Okay, go to Uncle Laban's house. Okay, well, that turns out to be kind of a plus and minus type of situation, as we'll see when, we, when he gets there. But she tells him to go to Laban's house. It's her brother's house. Uh, and that's back in Haran. That's where Abraham originally came from. Okay, so, so her concern here is that she wants to get Jacob... Out of, uh, out of the land of Canaan, away from home because of the physical peril that he's in. And so she wants him to flee to, uh, to her brother's house uh, there in Paden Aaron. And, uh, and how long does she expect this to take? A few days. How long did it take? We know it took at least 20 years. Okay. Now, she said a few days, and what was going to be the clue to her when the time was over? Okay, when Esau's anger is subsided. What's wrong with the way Rebecca is thinking here? First of all, she says, when he forgets what he did, he will never forget. Okay, okay, okay. He ain't going to forget it. And, 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 and that, incidentally, is the thing I alluded to earlier. Notice she's not mentioning anything about what she, the part she played in it. You know, I can't imagine how he felt towards her. But so he says, you know, tell he forgets. Well, he's not going to forget. But he also, she also talks about when his anger what? Subsides. Okay. What's she saying? To put it in the vernacular. He'll get over it. <laughs> He'll get over it. What's wrong with the way she's thinking? Yeah, yeah. Which means, which means what about her perception of Esau? Okay, okay. Yeah, that's true. 
She really doesn't understand, does she? Do you ever notice how easy it is when, when you've well, let's put it the other way around. When somebody's wronged you, for them to think it's no big deal to you. Did you ever notice that? Or when I've wronged somebody. Uh, uh, there's a, an example in my mind that I encountered here three or four or five years ago of, a, of an individual who had, who had it, it, it came out that he had just terribly betrayed and deceived his family for many, many, many years. And, and devastatingly injured his children, wounded his children. And finally, it was all disclosed and revealed and, and he admitted he was wrong and he apologized to his children and then he just expected his children just forgive him and go back to life as usual. And he expected all these years of betrayal and deception to just be overcome in a couple hours discussion. You know? It's so easy for us to minimize when we wound somebody, to minimize what we think the wound has done to them. And she really has no clue how deeply she and her, and her other son have wounded Esau. Now, Esau is responsible for harboring the bitterness and the resentment. He's responsible for that. But he has been deeply wounded, not only by the betrayal of his brother, but by the betrayal of a parent. He has been deeply wounded by that. And, and Rebecca will never reach a point where she knows for sure that Esau's let it go. How do we know that? How do we know that, that Rebecca was never sure that Esau had gotten over it? She never sent for him. When he does come back, it's not because his mother sent for him. In fact, by that time, I think his mother was dead. We don't know for sure. But I think she was dead. In other words, she never saw him again. We used to say, get up and stop whining. I didn't pull the trigger that hard. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. I hadn't heard that before, but that's a good one. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, it's just a lesson to me. When I wound somebody, I need to be very careful about how quickly I expect them to get over it. You know, I may have hurt them a lot deeper. I don't think I can ever fully understand how deeply I hurt people. And neither can you. And so what that means is when I've hurt somebody, even after I've admitted it, and even after I've gone to them and said I've been wrong and I'm sorry, I need to be careful how quickly I expect them to come around. Because I really don't understand how deeply I've hurt people. And I've hurt a lot of people in my life very deeply. And some of them came around quicker than others. And, and we just need to learn to go, okay, I've done my part. I can't fix them. God's going to have to fix them. And I don't know how deeply I've wounded them, so I don't know how much healing they need. Well, Rick, yeah. And I've seen parents do that. In fact, my own mom did that. I went back for a meal one time. She said, well, I didn't fix this kind of food because you don't like it. And it has been at least 15 or 20 years since she had fixed that and didn't know that I liked that thing. Yeah. So, 
And I, that's just one little crumb yeah, example. Yeah. There's a lot of those kind of patterns. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You grow, yeah. and the other person, your parents, or the other person doesn't know. Still them. has you in this cubby hole over yeah. here. Yeah. I, I've seen yeah. it in my kids. Yeah. You know, they're separated for several years, and one's grown, and the yeah. other still treats the other one like a little, yeah. you know, immature or whatever. Yeah. And so maybe for her, she doesn't accept or, or recognize this growth in Esau, but now it's an important thing to him yeah. and address it in a totally different way. Yeah, yeah. And it clearly was important to him, whatever the reasons were. And we talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago. You know, I don't think he's had some spiritual awakening here or something. But it's clearly very important to him. You see, by the way, he repeatedly asked his father for a blessing. And his father repeatedly has to turn him down. But, so it is important to him for whatever reason. Yeah. Imagine the pain in Christ's heart. You know, like the mothers do not really love you. And now your father has turned yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, as critical as we are of Esau, and he deserves a lot of criticism. Uh, there is a lot of anguish there in the heart of a guy. Of course, he brought it on himself because of his carnality, but it's still there, and, it's, and it needs to be recognized uh, by people who are compassionate. And I think the Lord looks on him compassionately. Incidentally, there's a possibility that Esau's story turns out a lot better than you think it does. Uh, but we'll get to that eventually as we go on uh, in the weeks ahead. Well, um, so so now she's addressed her issue with Jacob, and then she goes to Isaac, and she's got to work things out with Isaac. And of course, the first thing that stands out to us here is these, this couple is not communicating well. We've already seen that earlier, and now in this situation, we, you know, she doesn't come to him and say to him. You know, okay, you know, your your oldest son's going to kill your youngest son unless you get him out of here. She doesn't tell him that for whatever reason. Maybe she thought he couldn't handle it. Or I don't know why she doesn't just come right out in the open. But when she comes to her husband, what does she tell him? She doesn't want a daughter-in-law like the other two daughter-in-laws she's already got. Okay. She says, boy, my life is miserable because of these daughters of Heth. She's referring, presumably here, she's referring to the daughters that Esau, the daughters of Heth that Esau had married, which we read about earlier. And, and these are bringing grief to her. Pardon? And to Isaac. Yes, and to Isaac. So it's bringing grief to both of them. And what's interesting here is at this point in the story of Isaac and Rebekah, we're focused pretty much on all the all the conflict and the, and the dysfunction within their relationship and that they can't communicate together. And we focus on all that. But I want to remind you that early on in the story of Rebecca and Isaac, we learned that Isaac loved Rebecca. I think he still does. And, uh, and, and there's something else. There's a subtext here. There's something under the surface and we don't see it because of all the problems in the relationship. That when it comes to the core values, they're still in agreement. Even though Esau, I mean, even though Isaac has, you know, gotten, you know, so he kind of likes the good food and he's been pretty non-discerning or uh, poor discernment in, in regard to Esau. And, 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 and as we said, he's kind of been spiritually blinded in some ways. They still have one core value in common. And we've not noticed that because we've been so focused on the differences in their relationship. And I would suggest to you that's exactly what happened with Esau. That Esau didn't know that dad and mom agreed on this issue. And that's the issue of who you marry. 
Because this has to do with the covenant promise. And they share their values. They share the value of the covenant promise and the importance of the covenant promise and the importance of marrying within the family to preserve the covenant promise. And they share that value and Rebecca knows that her husband shares that value so rather than coming and troubling him with this thought of one son killing the other son, she comes and appeals to him on this thing they have in common which is we want our sons marrying within the covenant. We want our sons marrying within the promise, within the blessing. And Esau's blown it and it's caused misery for me and it's caused misery for you. And then she raises this terrible specter. If Jacob should take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, from the daughters of Heth, she says, what does she say? What good will my life be to me? You know, the first time you read that, you go, well, she's just kind of being type A overdramatic here to get her point across, right? But I don't think that's what's going on at all. Think back in the life of Rebecca. Think back to chapter 24. Think back to that day when she walked out to the well in Haran to draw water. And she encountered for the first time in her life a man representing the living God, Yahweh. And this man came into her home and spoke to her and her family about this man, Abraham, and how God, her crazy uncle that she hadn't heard of for years and he spoke about Abraham and he spoke about Yahweh and he spoke about how God had given Abraham a covenant and God had given Abraham a promise and he now had a son and all that was being transferred to his son Isaac because he had this plan to bless the nations through this family and this woman Rebecca laid aside everything she knew and walked away from everyone she loved within 24 hours to embrace that covenant promise and to allow herself to be part of the instrumentality by which it would be fulfilled. She had given up everything for this one thing. And now... She is faced with the specter of her son marrying a Canaanite woman. And that's why she says, if he does that, what good is my life? I gave it up all. I gave up all to follow this dream. I gave up all for this covenant. I gave up all for this promise. I gave up all to be a part of it. And if it disintegrates here in Jacob marrying a Canaanite woman, what good is my life? I think this is a loaded statement she makes. I think it's full of pathos and I think it, and I think it triggered in Esau's heart of love for her uh, just uh, an irresistible, uh, compelling motive to do what she's saying 
You need to do. You need to get them out of here. Because it's all hanging on a thread here, Isaac. You've got to get him out. And so what we discover about Rebecca is that she really has two concerns on her mind. There are really two perils that are foremost in her mind regarding her son Jacob. One is the physical peril. As one commentator puts it, the persecution. Okay, <clears throat> the, the physical threat that his life is under from his brother. And she's concerned about that peril. But she is also concerned about the spiritual peril that Jacob is in. She's, she's fearful for the, for the accommodation to the world that will happen if Jacob marries a daughter of Heth. And so she really has these, these two concerns. And I, and I think about that and I think about where we are in our society today and what we think about our children today. And I think about how in our society today, how obsessed we are, I think overly so personally, with the physical well-being of our children. You know, I see, I see, you know, I remember how I used to ride bikes when I was a kid. <laughs> Out there on the highways around this little town, you know, whizzing down these hills at 30 mile an hour on a bicycle wearing jeans, to, jeans and a t-shirt and a pair of tennis shoes and, you know, on a public highway and, you know, I, I, so maybe it was kind of stupid, whatever, I don't know. But then I look out on my cul-de-sac and I see the kids riding bicycles out on my cul-de-sac and they're dressed in full armor. <laughs> you know, helmet, face mask, you know, knee pads, uh, shoulder pads, knee pads, elbow pads, you know, elbow pads, you know, they're just totally decked out for fear they'll fall off their bike and get a scratch, you know. And I go, good grief, let these kids live. We are obsessed with protecting our children from every physical danger. And then they get off their bike and they shed their helmet and they shed their pads and they come in and they sit down in front of the television or the computer and we don't give a thought to the spiritual dangers that they're, that they're facing. We just, you know, whatever. You know, we let the television babysit them and we don't, we don't care. Or the books that they read. Or the things that they surf and see on the internet. You know, we don't care about those things. And you have to hand it to Rebecca. But she's concerned about both aspects. She's concerned about the physical danger to her son, but she's also concerned about the spiritual peril that he's in. And she takes steps to protect him on both counts. Well, so Isaac calls Jacob in. And uh, it says that he, that he uh, blessed him and he charged him and he said to him. Okay, so there's a... There's a blessing and there's a charge there in what he says. And, and uh, the first thing he gives is the charge. And the charge is what? You do not marry a Canaanite woman, son. You don't do that. <clears throat> Men pick wives two different ways. Men who are not spiritually sensitive don't give any thought to the spiritual sensitivity of the woman they pick. Now, they may get lucky, but usually they don't. And, and just because the two of them are not spiritually sensitive doesn't mean that they can't in the future at some time become spiritually sensitive. But in general... Men, Christians or non-Christians, who are not spiritually sensitive, give no regard 
to the spiritual condition of the woman they marry. The flip side of that is men who care a great deal about the things of God refuse to marry any woman who does not also care deeply about the things of God. And Isaac is going to make sure his son is one of the second and not one of the first. So, he gives him this charge. You don't marry from the Canaanite woman. You go back and you marry one of these Aramean women. Okay? One of these from your line. Okay. Now, what's interesting is the Canaanite women were idol worshippers. What were the women in Laban's household? Idol worshippers. What's the difference? Well, actually, there's quite a difference. <laughs> there's quite a difference. Uh, and, and the difference is this, that the Aramean women, or at least those who are of the lineage of Terah, even though they're idol worshippers, when they get married, what do they do? They embrace their husband's God. You see that? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. They embrace the God of their husband, Yahweh, the God of the covenant. When the Canaanite women marry a guy, what happens? Yeah, the guy takes their religion. That's why God over and over again says, you don't marry. He tells the children of Israel, you don't marry these women. You know, we see it in the life of Solomon. You know, he marries all these women and what do they do? They pull his heart away. And so that's the difference. And so even though these women are idol worshippers, when they marry a man of the covenant, they embrace that God. The classic example of this, of course, is uh, all the stories of Scripture is the story of Ruth, right? What does she say? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. <laughs> That's the attitude that God is looking for. Okay. Well, so at any rate, uh, he's sent off. Now, we'll develop this more next week because I have other things I want to say. But let, let me just mention it. Notice the difference between when Jacob goes for a wife and when Abraham acquired a wife for for Isaac. The, the, the difference is just startling. Okay? And, and, but one of the things that's striking about Jacob when he goes for a wife is he goes alone and he goes without his inheritance. He really has no means of financial independence. Which becomes clear when he gets to the household of Laban and we'll see that as we go forward. Okay. So he goes forward basically with just travel money. Okay? He doesn't go with the money to buy a bride. And he goes all alone. And the fact that he goes is significant because Isaac was prohibited from going. But we'll develop all that next week. But, but there's one other thing I want to just talk about briefly in the last few minutes we have here. Uh, because somebody asked me about this a couple of weeks ago. They said, well, Rick, are you going to ever talk about the whole thing about God says he loved Jacob and hated Esau. And I said, well, uh, I, 
Pardon? You said to revive you. Oh, that's right. Okay, okay. Was that you that asked me? I knew somebody had. I had some. I didn't know who had. And but you notice it hasn't come up. It hasn't come up in the whole story of Genesis. I mean, if it had come up, we would have dealt with it. Okay, so I'm having to kind of detour here to, to deal with it. Okay. I woke up in the middle of the night last night thinking, that's significant that it doesn't come up in Genesis. Where does God say that? Well, let me ask even this question. Where is that verse cited where we really remember it most? It's in Hebrews, and he says it before they were ever born. Uh, right? No, no, not actually. Which part not actually? In Hebrews, he does talk about uh, him having chosen Jacob before he was born. Before they before they were born, yes. But but the verse the verse where he refers to Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, is cited where in the New Testament? Romans nine, the famous passage of Romans nine ten and eleven. Okay, but what is it? Where is it quoting from? Malachi chapter one, right? Malachi chapter one. Okay. And what's interesting is the reason it doesn't come up in Genesis is because it does not pertain to Jacob and Esau as individuals. <laughs> he looked at me askance like, what did you just say, Rick? <laughs> when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, who is he talking about in Malachi? The nations. He's talking about the nations. He's addressing in Malachi, he's addressing the nation of Israel, and he's talking about their situation and his relationship with them. And, and then he refers to Esau or Edom, okay, the nation or the descendants of Israel, um, excuse me, the descendants of Esau, and he says, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. Okay. But he's talking not about the individuals. He's talking about the nations. Now, the second thing I want to ask you is, when God chose Jacob, which he clearly did, sovereignly chose Jacob, what did he choose Jacob for? The blessing, okay? The covenant, the promise, but not salvation. There's nowhere in Scripture where it says that God chose Jacob to be saved and chose Esau to be damned. It says, rather, that he chose Jacob to be the vehicle, as one commentator puts it, the progenitor of the Messiah. That's what he was chosen for. And it really is not directly related to his Saving status, if you will. His salvation status with God. Why do I say that? Well, because Jacob had a great-grandfather who was also a progenitor of the Christ who was an idol worshiper. Terah. Right? All the things that are promised to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations, through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all of those things that are in the covenant promise that eventually get extended to Isaac and then to Jacob, were they not also true of Terah? 
And yet Terra is as pagan as they come. So the point I'm trying to make simply is to draw a distinction here that when God chose Jacob, he did not choose. There's nothing that says he chose Jacob to salvation. He chose Jacob for the blessing. He chose Jacob for the covenant. Okay. so the point is, when God chose Jacob and shall we say unchose or deselected Esau, what he was doing was he was choosing the vehicle or the means by which salvation and redemption would be brought to the nations. That's what he was choosing. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 9, and we don't have time, of course, here to expound on Romans chapter 9, and if we ever do study Romans 9, after we, Romans after we finish Genesis, eventually, several years from now, we'll get to Romans 9, okay? And then I'll explain to you why, I'm going to, why I say what I'm going to say right now, and that is that Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is not about God choosing people for individual salvation. It's not about that at all. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about God's sovereign choice of a means of salvation. That it's by faith. And his whole argument in Romans chapter 9 is, it's not by the works of the law, and it's not by your lineage, but God has chosen to save people by faith. Now deal with it. That's what he's saying in Romans 9, 10, 11. And so what, so what he's saying in Romans 9, 10, 11 is that God has a sovereign choice to save people any way he wants to save people. And he has chosen to save people by the instrumentality of faith. And that's God's choice. Now, for example, take Jacob and Esau. See, when we read Romans 9, 10, 11 and we think that God is saying that what it's saying is that God chooses individual people to salvation by some irresistible choice. And we see that. Then when we see the illustration of Jacob and Esau, we think he's talking about saving Jacob and Esau, but he's not talking about saving Jacob and Esau. He's talking about the instrumentality of bringing redemption to the nations and that he chose Jacob for that. And just as God had the sovereign choice to choose Jacob as the instrumentality by which he would bring redemption to the nations, so God also has the sovereign choice to save people by faith and not by works and not by their Jewish lineage. And that's what Romans 9, 10, 11 is about. And the evidence of that is everything else that goes before it in Romans 1 through 8. But like I say, you'll have to wait till I teach Romans again before we get into all that. Okay? But keep that in mind when you're thinking about this whole thing about God choosing Jacob and, and, uh, and, and not choosing Esau is that he's not talking about salvation, but he's talking about choosing them as an instrumentality of faith or an instrumentality of redemption. Okay? Well, we're out of time. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. He says there in Romans 9 that he's going to have mercy on him. He has mercy. Mm-hmm. Not because of works, but because of works, he wouldn't have had mercy on Jacob either. Exactly. Because, you know, he did bad stuff. Exactly. Exactly. So he has mercy on those who believe. That's who he chooses to have mercy on. Yeah. Okay. We're long out of time. Thanks. We'll see you next week.